All right. Well, as Keith said, we're continuing in our journey through the Apostles' Creed today. So you guys know the drill. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand up and let's confess the Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so this is our 11th week now in our series on the Creed, and I've decided that this is going to be our last day. Uh, next Sunday is our annual Thanksgiving Sunday where we have several people from our congregation share testimonies about how God has worked in their lives. Really encourage you guys to make it a point to be here for that. That's one of my favorite Sundays of the year. If you're not traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday, really great week to be here. Um, and then after that, it's uh, Christmas season, December, so I want to have more Christmas themed kind of stuff going on. Uh, so we're, we're going to try to pack uh, two weeks' worth into one week today. I'll do my best uh, to do that. But you guys probably remember that throughout the fall, I've encouraged us to try and memorize the creed. Uh, so I, I would be a hypocrite if I didn't try to do this myself. So I, I'm not going to look at it. Uh, you, guys, you guys are going to have to assess if I do this, okay? Um, I believe in God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. <laughs> I was a little nervous that when the pressure was on, I would mess it up. So, uh, is there a brave soul who wants to try to say it? If you, there might be a prize in it for you if you can. Uh, pull it off. Going once. Go. <laughs> okay, well, um, I'm going to extend the invitation one more time next Sunday. So, if you, if you want to give it a shot, there's a, there's a prize in it for you, okay? If you get it. And, and just to be fair, you don't have to get the words exactly right, okay? There's several different, you know, minor variations. As long as you get every line in general, you're, you're good, so. All right, so what we have left is 
I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints and the resurrection of, of the body and the life everlasting. So, we're going to start with the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting because I, I feel like we covered a little bit of this already. I'll try to do this, this one quickly. When we confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body, we are not saying that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus' body. Because we said that already, right? That would be repetitive. What we're actually saying is that we believe in the resurrection of our bodies. Uh, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Then not even Christ has been raised. When Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, he noticed that there was this error going on that needed to be corrected, which was that people in the church were saying that when somebody dies, the only experience that that soul has after that is a spiritual experience. There's never any kind of return to bodily existence, ever. And what Paul said to them was, hey, if that's true, you might as well just say that Christ w wasn't risen from the dead either, right? If you say it's impossible for anyone to return to bodily existence, you might as well say the same thing about Christ. Now, they were saying that Christ had risen from the dead, so he's, he was saying, look, you've got to recognize there's an, there's an inconsistency here. So Paul goes on to say, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is an agricultural term. It refers to the very first crops of a harvest. So what Paul is saying here is that Christ's resurrection is the first of a much larger harvest of resurrection that is coming for us. Around the time that the creed was first developed, there was a movement which is now known as Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism taught is that the physical world is bad. Therefore, salvation means, be, means being freed from the physical world to exist in some sort of spiritual realm. And the Apostle Paul said no to Gnosticism. Jesus said no to Gnosticism. And Orthodox Christianity has always said no to Gnosticism. What, what the Bible teaches is that the physical world is God's idea, and it's fundamentally good. Now, yes, the physical world has gotten messed up by sin, but it is still, at the heart of it, good. Like, you probably remember in the story of God creating in Genesis, what happens? He, he creates something, and he looks at it, and he thinks, oh, that's good. Right? Over and over again, that's good, that's good, that's good. And so, we don't affirm Gnosticism. Okay, we affirm the idea that the physical world is good. Therefore, salvation cannot just be being freed from the physical world. Salvation has to include the healing of the physical world, which includes the healing of our bodies. Right? So, that is why we confess we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The life everlasting is a bodily existence. Now you might be thinking right now, well, 
I want to believe that. But it's so hard. It's so hard to believe that, you know? It's hard to imagine those who, who have died returning to some kind of bodily existence. It feels easier to just imagine them existing in some sort of spiritual realm, floating in the ether or whatever, you know, but to actually imagine them coming back. That strains belief. That's hard. And, you know, the people in Corinth had a hard time believing it too. Like, just, just like us, they would think, hey, Long after these bodies have turned to dust, how could they possibly come back? Paul says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Right? These, these people in the ancient world had the same kind of questions that modern scientific people would have as well. And Paul gives an answer that I think is helpful, um, not only for people in Corinth, but for us today. He gives the analogy of a seed. And this is what he says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Right, so Paul is saying, think about a seed, right? Has a certain appearance to it, right? And then, in a sense, it dies, right? Because it goes into the ground. It kind of gives up its seedness, right? It's no longer visible to you. As far as you know, it is gone, right? But when the time is right, that seed then rises with a new body, a new form. If you had never seen a seed turn into something else, you would have a hard time believing that that were possible, right? It's only because we're used to it that we're not impressed by it. And Paul is saying, if, if God can give a new body to a seed, why would you think he couldn't give a new body to you? He's saying, think of death, the death of a human, of a human being, like the planting of a seed, that when the time is right, that seed will flower into something more glorious than what was planted. Another analogy, which Paul does not use, but I think is helpful, is the butterfly. Um, God can give a new body to a caterpillar, right? If you had never heard that caterpillars turn into butterflies, you would think, no way, that that's possible, right? That this worm-like thing goes into a sack and then like dissolves into goo, and gets reconfigured as this creature with these wings and that can fly and you know looks so different from a caterpillar. You know, if I told you that's what happens, you would think, you know, get out of town. That's ridiculous. Um, but it happens. And if God can give new bodies to seeds and caterpillars, then he can give new bodies to us. Here's one more thought that might be helpful. You know, I was thinking recently, what if we had never experienced the change in seasons before? And we started uh, existing, fully aware of our surroundings, in the summer. And, you know, we, we, all we know is long, hot days, right? And then, at a certain point, we start to notice, hey, it's getting a little cooler. And at first, we might think, oh, it feels nice, you know? 
I'm not sweating all the time. And then we'd start to see the leaves changing. And we think, oh, this is kind of pretty. But then the leaves would start falling. And then that cool weather would start becoming uncomfortably cold, right? And then we notice that everything green is turning brown and all the bugs that used to, you know, make our surroundings teem with life are silent and dead. And at a certain point, you might think, this is it. This is how it ends, right? If you look at a tree in winter and you didn't know that spring would ever come, like if you had no experience of that and someone said, oh, I, I think that the leaves and all the bugs and the green, I think it's all going to come back. You'd probably say, I can't, I can't imagine that. It's only because we're used to it that we're not that impressed, right? And so if, if God can bring back all of that, you know, why wouldn't God be able to bring back our bodies? Every year, nature testifies to the fact that what seems impossible is possible, that what seems dead doesn't necessarily have to be forever dead. So, we confess, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Alright, so let's look at the last remaining line. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Now I suspect, and I know, that over the last few months, a lot of us have been confused. Why do we keep saying we believe in the Holy Catholic Church when this is not a Catholic Church? Or you might say, well, I thought it wasn't a Catholic Church. You're married. <laughs> you, don't, you don't wear the collar, right? So it all depends on what you mean by that word Catholic. So if you mean the church organization that has its uh, base in Vatican City, then no, this is not a Catholic church, right? We don't submit to the authority of the Pope. But Catholic, that word, has a much longer history, okay, that precedes what we call the Roman Catholic Church. And what the word Catholic literally means is universal. Universal. So hold that thought, we're going to come back to that, but before we talk about what that means, we have to talk about this word church. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. So the word church uh, in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. And what ekklesia means, if you look it up in the Strong's Concordance, for some of you that might mean something. Uh, Strong's Concordance is a gathering of citizens called out of their homes into some public place, an assembly. So, what is the church? Well, we have a tendency to point at a building and say, look at that church there. Right? But looking at this word here, we can see the church is not a building. Right? The church is an assembly of people church's people. Now some people might say, oh, the church's people, not a building, so I don't need to go to a church, right? I am the church. But that's only partly right. You alone are not the church. Are you an assembly? Are you a gathering? No, right? 
If you say, I am the church, that's kind of like a brick saying, I am the wall. No, that's not exactly right. Church is not a building. Church is people. But it can't just be one person. It's an assembly. It's a gathering. Now, that raises the question, okay, well, what kind of people count as this assembly? Well, let's look at a passage that might be helpful. Matthew 16, starting in verse 15. Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So here Jesus says that he's building a church, an ecclesia, an assembly of people, which the gates of hell will not prevail against. In other words, um, the world may try to kill it, the powers of darkness may try to kill it, but they won't be able to. And Jesus says that this church, this assembly, is going to be built on a rock, a foundation. Now what is the rock? When you read commentaries on this, there's, there's two typical answers. One is to say the rock is Peter. The other one is to say the rock is Peter's confession. The confession of you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That that's the rock that the church will be built on. I think the answer is both. Right? Peter, his name means rock. So obviously Jesus is doing a little play on words here. Right? And he's saying, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So obviously he's saying something about how Peter is going to have this authority. And he's going to be a rock. He's going to be a foundation on which the church is built. But the only reason that Peter is in that position to be that rock is because he makes that confession. Right? It's because he recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So that, that confession is more foundational. right? But Jesus is still saying, because this has been revealed to you, I'm equipping you to build my church, right? And not only Peter, but I would say all the disciples are included in that, right? What happens later in the Gospel of Matthew at the end is that Jesus gives what's known as the Great Commission, and he gives the disciples authority to go and teach and build his church, build his assembly. So, okay, let's return to the question that brought us here in the first place, which is what kind of people are part of this assembly that Jesus is building. What kind of people? Well, these are people who, one, share the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We, we've all come to that agreed position, right? And two, people who are spiritually descended from Peter and the apostles, right? If, if Peter and the apostles were the ones who were given the keys to the kingdom to, to do this work, then what we teach and say and believe should line up generally speaking, right, with what they taught and said and believed. So, wherever people are assembling who share these things, that's the church. That's church. Okay, so what about that word Catholic? Universal. Why would we call the church universal 
if the church only includes the people who recognize Jesus as Lord. Not everybody recognizes Jesus as Lord, right? So why would we call the church universal? Well, here's why. It's because the assembly that Jesus is building is not just for one nation, one language, one culture, one ethnicity, or one skin color, right? The call to gather around Jesus Christ goes out to the whole world, to everyone. Now, people have a choice whether or not to respond to that, right? But the call goes out to all. When you think of the church as Catholic, think of Revelation 7-9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's it. The Catholic Church. The universal church. When we say we believe in the Catholic Church, we're saying, I believe in a church that looks like that. You know, different cultures have different styles of dress, different cuisine, uh, different customs, different music. And there have sometimes been branches of the church who want to say, well, the true church is a very specific in all those respects, right? The true church is going to be the one where you know, the men are clean-shaven and they part their hair right on the side. And uh, the women always wear skirts and that sort of thing. But when we say that the church is Catholic, what we're saying is that what gets transferred to each culture is a message that's not real specific about those kinds of things. Okay, the church can be, have, be expressed in all kinds of different cultures as long as that central revelation is there that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right? So that's what we mean when we say that the church is Catholic. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. The communion of saints. <clears throat> saints is a word that the New Testament uses not just for the miracle workers and the heroes of the church, but just ordinary people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ and have been filled with the Holy Spirit. So you guys, you are the saints. We are the saints. So when we say we believe in the communion of the saints, we're saying we believe in Christian community. Right? We believe that fellowship matters. We believe that people who believe in Jesus are supposed to encourage one another and work with one another and minister to each other. That that's part of the program that Jesus began. You know, I think that it's very important for us today to confess this part of the creed. Because we do live in a time when a lot of people are abandoning the assembly of the saints. Abandoning the communion of the saints. You know, I read recently that the average church in America has 25% lower attendance than they did before the pandemic. That's an average. 25% less in-person attendance. Now, I know that there are a lot of reasons why people leave the assembly of the saints. 
And some of those reasons are for very valid critiques. Critiques that I would probably agree with, many of them. Um, that's because throughout church history, church assemblies have had problems. Right? Because although they're made up of saints, they're not made up of perfect people. And some church assemblies get so sick that they're not safe places to be. And they hardly even count, or may not even count, as part of the church. Because some church assemblies claim to be assembling around Jesus Christ, but they're not really. Some church assemblies end up being more about money, or partisan politics, or man-made traditions, or teachings that bear no resemblance to what the apostles taught. And so, I don't want to be dismissive about the complaints that people have about their own experiences with church assemblies. But at the same time, we've got to recognize that assembly matters. Jesus came to build a church, an assembly, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, and we have to recognize the Apostle Paul definitely had complaints about the church assemblies of his day, right? Read the New Testament. Those letters are two church assemblies, and they're filled with problems. And that's why Paul is motivated to write these letters, right? Especially the church in Corinth. That place was filled with factions and immaturity and sexual immorality and even denial of the resurrection of the body, right? Core, core part of the Apostles' Creed. But Paul still writes to them. Paul still calls them brothers and sisters. Right? Paul still values them and believes that God can work through them. In a time when people are giving up on the assembly around Jesus, it is good for us to confess this part of the creed. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of the saints. Even though the church is a mess, it always has been a mess, we should believe in it, meaning we should believe that God chooses to work through it, that the Holy Spirit does things through the church, because Jesus is the one who started it, and Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, like I said, some individual assemblies do cease to be the church, because they cease to be built around around Jesus. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Jesus warns certain churches about that danger. It's described as their lampstand being removed, their light going out, if they cease to be oriented around, around him. But the Holy Catholic Church is always going to be represented on this earth. Always. Because Jesus said it would. And so all followers of Jesus should want to participate in the assembly and believe that God can work through it and will work through it. You know, God has set things up such that we really need each other. Even if we don't think we do, we do. You know, some, I've heard some Christians say, well, I, I just need the Bible. I, I don't need the church. I don't need to go to a, an assembly. 
And it is certainly true that God can do a lot in your life through you just individually reading the Bible. That's true. But keep in mind, without the church, you wouldn't have that Bible in the first place. Right? And a lot of the letters in the New Testament are written to, to who? To church assemblies. Right? So when you're reading those letters about how to live in community, how are you going to apply that if you're not involved in a church assembly? Right? And you do need the church, because think about it this way. Not only would the letters themselves in the Bible not exist, but you wouldn't be able to read it without the church, because you can't read Greek, right? <laughs> Can you read Greek? The only reason you have a Bible in English is because the church translated it. That's how it got to you. We all need the church. We can't just have the Bible. And if you read the Bible closely, you'll find that it's calling you to church community, right? It encourages you to see yourself as part of one body with all believers, a body that's called it the body of Christ. And you'll find Jesus praying for unity in that body. That's the last prayer that he offers before going to the cross. That's how important it is to him. How can we have unity if we don't have assembly, if we don't have communion? You know, one of the stories that I'm reminded of that's a great example of how important communion of the saints is to God is the story of the Apostle Paul. Right? The Apostle Paul was persecuting Christians, and then one day, on the road to Damascus, he has this incredible experience with God. Right? He sees this bright light, he's blinded, he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's humbled. He's changed. Now, God could have just said, zap, I'm going to heal you of your blindness now. But that's not what he does. What, what, what God does is God shows a vision to a Christian named Ananias and tells him, I want you to go and pray for Saul, this guy that's been persecuting the church, lay hands on him, pray for him, heal him, fill him with the Holy Spirit, and Ananias says, oh, I don't know about that, <laughs> right? But, but he, he understands this is what the Lord is calling him to do. And so Ananias goes to Paul and he, he, he calls him brother. The moment he shows up, brother Saul. And he lays hands on him, he prays for him. It says something like scales falls from Ananias' eyes. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Ananias baptizes him, which means Ananias does the act that recognizes Saul as now being part of the body of Christ, as part of the family of God, right? God was not content to just have Paul be healed on his own and just have this one-on-one -on -one encounter with him, right? God wanted to bring Paul into the communion of the saints, you know, and sometimes we think that we can be healed and that we can be whole in our relationship with God if it's just one-on-one. -on -one. But really, the truth is that like Paul, the scales will not fall from our eyes and we will not experience the healing until we come to the assembly and we're part of the communion of saints. That's the way, that's the way God set it up. Just to end with one more example 
So last week, if you were here, you heard Dean's incredible testimony. And if you missed that, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's powerful. Um, but if you were here, you probably remember Dean saying that at one point, when he was at you know, his lowest, after, uh, after things fell apart in his marriage, um, he went to church, and that morning, one, the hymn that was being sung was the hymn that had been encouraging him that whole week. Two, the former pastor who lived on the other side of the country that he thought needed to be brought into this situation was in church that morning. Just happened to be in church. And another person in the church came up to him and presented him with a verse that God had given her for him that was the exact same obscure verse that he had been thinking of the previous week. All of that happened, and it was so powerful for, for Dean because it confirmed for him that, Dean, that, that God was at work in Dean's life and that, that God had him through this, right? But would Dean ever experience that kind of confirmation if he had not come into the assembly of the saints, right? We believe in the communion of the saints in the Holy Catholic Church, meaning we believe that when we choose to participate in it, that God works, that stuff happens, right? Like that. And so let's be involved in the assembly with that kind of expectation and that kind of hope. Amen? All right. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this time that we've been able to spend in the creed over the last few months. And Lord, um, we pray uh, that you would fill our assembly with your spirit's presence, uh, that when we come here, Lord, you would work among, among us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to truly believe, to have that confidence uh, that you, you can do great things when we gather together. Uh, that we are stronger together than we are apart, uh, that we don't want to just be individual bricks claiming that we're a wall, but that we want to join together and become uh, that wall, that beautiful building, Lord, that you want to create with Christ, with you as the foundation. Um, so, Lord, uh, we just we invite you to work in and among us. We thank you uh, that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.